0: Open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 5. I had the um, delight a few years ago, uh, three years ago I believe, of going to the Grand Canyon for the first time. Uh, Me and my sons were there and exploring around and one day decided we would go and hike down into the canyon. Um, It was uh, such a memorable time for me as... As you descend down into that uh, mammoth hole there, you begin to realize that in some ways the canyon changes as you go down. You couldn't have anticipated it, looking at it and being in awe of it from the rim and trying to take in the full breadth of the distances in front of you, and yet as you descend down the trail and you are taking note along the way of each of the various uh, strata uh, of rock that are in front of you, and then you lift up your eyes uh, to what is above, and you are once again amazed at the views uh, that, are, that are before you. And, and every, every few uh, moments as you walk down, it's just another level of amazement that I could hardly get over the whole time. Well, this morning we are, if you will, descending. We're descending into another magnificent view of another magnificent doctrine. And if you will, we're gazing at it from all of these levels. Uh, Maybe you might say deeper and deeper, or at least uh, different at different times. Paul is taking us down into the depths of the beauty and majesty of the Lord's grace in saving us by justification. That's really what this chapter or these uh, several chapters have been about from uh, beginning about in chapter 3 as Paul began to plunge into the beauties of the Lord's rescue operation for our lives. He had laid out the, the full... A picture of the darkness of our sin, and then began to explain to us just how, despite the fact that we were so lost, despite the fact that we were so alienated from God, despite all of those things, the Lord was able to still rescue us. That, that work happened because of the man Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice, his, as Paul says in one place, his propitiation. The fact that He gave Himself on a cross to satisfy all of God's wrath against us. The question would have arisen on the part of some people, how could that be? I mean, how could, how could you nullify all the great things that we do? How could you uh, eliminate all the efforts that we make? The Jews would have come along and said, how can you discount Uh, all of our personal righteousness, and how can you make it all hang on the act of one single person? How can one single person's act save or benefit so many people? Paul anticipates that, and in order to, if you will, justify that doctrine, he presents to us what we find here in Romans chapter 5. From verse 12 to the end, a basic analogy, a comparison meant to teach the, 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 uh, the reality, and we might even say the excellence of the single work of Christ on the benefit or for the benefit of so many who believe in Him. It's a comparison of the impact of the life of two men. On the one hand, there's the impact of Adam. On the other hand, there's the impact of Christ. And the main point of comparison in both of these men is that one single act on behalf of each of them made an impact on countless numbers of people. For Adam, it was the one single act of disobedience, the one single act of sin, who, by by committing that, he had an impact on every single person who would ever be born. The only exception, of course, would be the other man in this analogy, Jesus Christ, who by His one act, His sacrifice, He had an impact on every single person who would ever be united to Him by faith. That impact is righteousness, it is salvation, it is, it is eternal life. Now, that's the basic analogy. One man sinned, it led to condemnation, and it led to death. One man obeyed, and it led to salvation, and it led to life. I mean, those are deep enough and profound enough thoughts, but, but we, we don't get just that. We don't get just that. As Paul uh, began, as we start, started to see last week, Paul begins in verse 12 to take that basic analogy and unfold it in various levels of glory for us or take us down into deeper and deeper stratas of that amazing truth and we begin to see how life is reigning through Christ and death was reigning through Adam and yet those truths only scratch the surface of what these two men did in their respective roles. All of this summarized as 1 Corinthians 15 as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. But that is, that is only the surface. Paul begins to explain to us in detail the impact of these two men. Last week we saw in verses 12 through 14 primarily the impact of Adam and the theme of how his role and his action brought about death. And death now reigns among all of us, and now, today, as we come to verse fifteen, the theme that really remains in the rest of these verses, and we 'll be looking at this morning is the theme of life, and how Christ answered that one act from Adam and brought about the reign of life for all men and we can begin again just simply by reading the passage so you can grasp all of the different angles of the contrast that paul 's presenting to us. he says in verse twelve, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not in the like, not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass, much more then has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you read through that, and no doubt you recognize the repetition that's taking place, the repetition of the same basic analogy. You have one man and his results, and you have another man, and the results of his life. And it's important to point out to us that that similarity cast all the way through the passage is where the similarity ends. Because from that point on, it isn't how they're similar, but it's how they're dissimilar. It isn't how they're the same, it's how they are so much unlike similar in the fact that one person affected so many but dissimilar in how they affected us one brings sin and death and condemnation the other brings righteousness and life and salvation and so what you have here are really a series of contrast a series of contrast in distinctions such as absolutely glorious as we will see in fact there are 5 key distinctions we want to look at this morning between Adam's sin and Jesus' sacrifice that Paul gives us that really highlight for us the glorious benefits of Christ's work. He'll speak to us about the reach of these two men, the result of these two men, the reward, the relationship, and ultimately the rule that comes as a result of these two men, those five distinctions, really boiling down the message as we will see. And so we can begin in verse 15, talking about the differences in these two men regarding their reach, regarding their reach. They're different. That is, there's a difference in them in who is reached by their work. And in fact, Paul's focus here turns not so much on the men themselves, but on what they gave to those who are theirs. You see that, particularly in verses 15, 16, and 17, with the repetition of the word free gift, or the word simply gift. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. And then in verse 16, the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but what? The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And then once again in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift or the free gift of righteousness reign in life. The key word there being gift or free gift, charisma is the word, it comes from the word charis. Uh, The emphasis on what is given to us. And so what he's bringing out here is that Jesus has given us a number of benefits that he's outlining here. And on the other hand, our relationship with Adam, or through our relationship with Adam, what we have received are a number of liabilities, a number of burdens, a number of curses. Well, these liabilities, these burdens are ours because of his trespass. But the free gift isn't like that. It isn't like that. By the way, the word trespass, paraptoma, is the word. It basically means to cross a boundary. And it refers to someone who goes into obviously forbidden territory or off of a, 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 an allowed pathway to go into a place that doesn't belong to them, to violate an authority and to go beyond their bounds, that is to trespass, to transgress. And it very much describes Adam, it very much describes both he and Eve, who being uncontent with what the Lord had given them, decided to take more. Decided that they didn't want to be just God's creation. They wanted to be like God. That was at least the, the lie that they were chasing when they ate of a forbidden tree. And so they pursued what wasn't theirs. They, they were, were, in other words, they were takers. Attempting to take what didn't belong to them. From someone, uh, someone who they didn't even have authority over. And so the idea is on one side you have someone violating the boundaries, violating the rights of others, violating and taking what's not theirs. That was Adam. But on the other hand, you have someone giving. You have someone giving to others what they don't possess, something they could never earn, which is Christ giving from God what we could never have on our own, which is the free gift of righteousness. But the free gift doesn't come to everyone. It only comes to those who are in Christ, as Paul says in verse seventeen. It is to those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. They are the ones who will reign through uh, reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. And so you see the reach of what each of these men gives to us, or what we, what we might say in the case of Adam, what they took from us the reach of their actions, the reach of their taking or their giving are not the same. On the one hand, for Adam, and everyone who is related to him, everyone, that is, who is born in this world, they'll die. But on the other hand, for Christ, and everyone who is related to him, that is, those who are related by faith, they will live. Now, some people stumble over all of this. They stumble over this Simple and profound truth because they quite simply stumble over the terminology Paul uses here. Because you'll notice in verse 15, he doesn't say all died through Adam. What does he say? Many. He says many died through the one man's trespass. That might give you the impression that what he's speaking about here is a lack of totality. Or a lack of comprehensiveness. In other words, it might give you the impression that he is excluding some people from this ill effect. Not every single person, in other words, is going to suffer the effect of what Paul's talking about. But of course we know from the rest of Scripture that it is appointed to man once to die. We know from the rest of Scripture that the wages of sin is death. And that everyone is sold under to sin. Even last week, we know that every person born in this world, with the exception of Christ, whose miraculous conception exempted him from this curse, we know that every one of them suffered the ill effects of Adam's curse because they're all credited with his violation. His curse is applied to you before you're ever conceived. And so you are conceived, therefore, In sin, dead spiritually, dead to the things of God, incapable of responding to God. You're born, in other words, under the condemnation of death. Spiritual death and then eventually physical death. So all die. Scripture emphatically teaches that everywhere. Even this passage teaches that. Every person born in this world is born under the same condition. It isn't just for many of us. It is for all of us. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to say, And you were, therefore, by nature, children of wrath. That is your nature. That is the way in which you were born. You were born under the wrath of God. Or later, even in Romans, Paul will go on to say, The mind that is set on the flesh is death. That's all of us, not just some of us. If you're here today and you're born, you're dead when you're born. You're dead spiritually and you will eventually one day die materially because of the curse of Adam. You were born then under this curse. This is God's condemnation against all men. This is the way He treats you. This is the way He's treated everyone who was born since the time of Adam. Adam. Now, you might say then, in verse 15 right here, well, if that's what Paul meant, if, if everywhere else he says all of us, why in this verse does he say many of us? Well, because he's simply writing, what he's trying to do is to establish a parallel between Adam and Christ. What he's trying to do is establish that you move from, if you will, the particular To the general or from the singular to the, the mass, to the whole. And so what he's trying to do is present these two men in literary parallel. And so he uses language to do that. You see in verse 15, many died through the one man's trespass. Or down in verse 19, by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. When in fact all of us died and all of us are sinners. And then in verse 18. He doesn't use the word many, he shifts to the word all. One trespass led to condemnation for all men, and one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for what? All men. And some people have approached this passage with poor skill in interpretation or poor grounding in their hermeneutics or whatever. And they've just concluded, well, it says that justification came to all men. So therefore, in some way, all people must be justified in God's sight. Many of them end up then teaching what is called universalism. That Jesus' atonement was universally justified applied to everyone, and in the end, everyone is saved. There's no hell. God ultimately shows compassion to everyone. Everyone eventually goes to heaven one way or another. Everyone is eventually saved. This is universalism. It's contrary to the Bible, contrary even to the teaching of this passage. Because the key to what Paul's saying here is realizing that in each case he's making this one-to-many or one-to-all contrast in respect to the relationship you have to each of these men. It is in respect to the relationship you have to each of these men. In other words, he's paralleling these two men Not their recipients. He's paralleling them. He's paralleling their actions. He's not saying that all the recipients of Adam are the same recipients of Christ. What he's saying is the one act of Adam had an impact on many people. And so did the one act of Christ. In each case, his point is not that the recipients are exactly parallel. But there's an exact parallel between the men and between their actions. Therefore, all who are in Adam receive death, but all who are in Christ receive life. One act affected many in Adam, and so one act affected many in Christ. In other words, he's simply emphasizing the move from this individual act to a corporate result. The passage is not supposed to teach that everyone is eventually justified, nor is it supposed to teach that not everyone is sinful. Sound interpretation tells us that. We recognize Paul has done this just as he's done in other passages. He's using these words with limited application according to the context. But he does it all the time. He uses the word all in ways that don't mean all. I mean, even we referenced earlier 1 Corinthians 15, 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all die. Be made alive. And we understand right there in the context of that verse that it is those who are in Adam who die, and it is those who are in Christ who are made alive, and yet he uses all for both of them. Or even in 2 Corinthians 5 14, the love of God controls us because we've concluded that uh, this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for their sake and was raised again. In other words, who are the all for whom Christ died? They are the ones who have died with Him and and live with Him. So we recognize when Paul uses the word all, it has to be interpreted in its context. All doesn't always mean every single human. All, as we saw in verse 17, even here, refers to those who receive God's grace and His free gift in Christ. The point is, really here in verse 15 then, that the transgression, the trespass of Adam, extended to every person who's related to Him. And in the same way, the free gift of Christ is extended to every person who is related to Him. And so the reach of these two men is is different. It's different. That's not all. You'll notice how Paul adds the words, much more. If, If many died through one man's trespass, verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man abounded to many. He uses that phrase, uh, just as he does down in verse 15, to to bring emphasis. Adam's single sin had its effect. And and for men to be saved, it needed an answer. but, But Christ gives us much more. Because His sacrifice pays the penalty not only for Adam... But for all who would believe, and his sacrifice pays the penalty not only for Adam's sin, but even for all of the sins of all those people who believe. So it didn't just answer Adam's sin, it went way beyond Adam's sin. Because now it's not only Adam's sin that we're talking about, originally, it was that one sin which condemned everyone. But with the coming of the law, for those who heard it, it literally multiplied their guilt, it increased their culpability, and increased their sin, and so the punishment was worse for those who are under the law, worse for those who hear the teaching of the truth, worse for those. For those who heard the teaching of Christ. So that Jesus can turn around and say to the people of Galilee. It would be worse for you than in in Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Why? Because you heard more truth. And so Christ's sacrifice comes in and is much more than Adam's one sin because it deals with not only Adam's sin and the, and the cumulative impact on every single life since Adam, but it goes beyond that impact and even deals with the impact of all their individual sins. It's much more. Adam's single act was powerful, but Jesus' act was so much more powerful. And so we might say that the evil from which Christ saves us is greater than the evil that Adam gave us. Christ has done more to remove the curse and to forgive innumerable sins. That leads us naturally to a second distinction that Paul's bringing to light. As we travel down the pathway and begin to gaze at the various strata of what he's saying to us, here in all that Christ has done for us. He tells us there was also a different result. A different result, verse 16. The free gift isn't like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So, so there's a different result and the contrast is clear and it's profound. One sin was powerful. It brought judgment and condemnation for the human race, for everyone. And by the way, if you ever, if you ever think about, if you ever doubt whether or not God takes sin seriously, just ponder that one truth. That for one sin from one person, God was so angry that He was willing to condemn that one person. But not only Him, for that one sin of that one person, He was willing to condemn every single person born into this world. If you ever wonder what God's attitude is about sin, there you there is your answer. He hates sin. He hates it in the utmost way. And he hates it to such a degree that he will go to the greatest degree in punishment of it. This is the testimony of that. He doesn't take sin lightly. He didn't then and he doesn't today. The sin of Adam, in other words, was so hated by God, he was willing to condemn all of humanity for it. And guess what? The sin that you committed this morning... The sin that you'll commit this afternoon. The sin that you would commit tonight. God hates it so much that based on that one sin, He would condemn all of humanity. Not just you. For that one sin. Adam brought condemnation. Adam brought death on all of us. That was the result. The result of one sin... Death and condemnation to all of us. You might ask, well, isn't that a little bit over the top? I mean, isn't God overreacting? Is God overreacting to one sin? Does God overreact to my sin? Well, it just shows, perhaps, how little we know of God and His holiness. How little you understand of the heinous effects of sin. How little you understand its ugliness. You could imagine giving birth to a beautiful little baby, an innocent and joyous occasion. Nothing so sweet, really, in the world as a newborn. Their chubby cheeks and, and their, their laugh and the gaze of their eyes taking in everything for the first time. But then someone comes along and accidentally spills a vial of acid all over their face blinding their eyes forever and leaving the skin marred with the scorches of that acid. Doctors, of course, could be there. They could save the life of the child. But you know that the life of that child will never be the same. You know for the rest of their days, they will be marred by the scar of someone else's carelessness. And while you may delight in loving the child and while you might show them the grace and love that you've been shown by others and by the Lord, there's no way that you could recapture the joys of sight, the innocence of childhood, the social innocence that will always be lost because of the scars on their face and in their eyes. The offense could be forgiven, but in some ways so much has been lost. The privileges of sight, the purity of that sweet face can never be the same because of the consequences of one action. You see, this is sin. This is sin. The Lord knew the consequences of one action and He hates it because sin brings death. It always brings death. It introduces pollution. It introduces marring. It introduces scarring. And not only that, this is much worse than simply some topical or, or, or uh, uh, cosmetic, we might say, effect. This goes to the core of our being. When Adam introduced sin into the world, when he brought sin into the world, it not only marred our bodies, it marred our hearts so that we didn't even want to be with God anymore. It brought about spiritual death so that we now... Despise the things of God. We disobey His law. We don't want to live under it. We want to go our own way. And so the Lord understands the impact of sin. And so the result of this one sin had to be that grand, it had to be that extensive. Because everything that came after Adam now would be marred in that way. He hates sin. He hates it as much today as he did back then. And he's just as willing to condemn for it today as he was back then. each sin, every sin that you commit brings just as much hatred from God. And so the result of Adam's sin was condemnation for all. But equally, equally, the result of Jesus' sacrifice was what? Justification. Taking all of the accusations, wiping them away, and justifying you. Making you just and right before God. In fact, if the breadth of the penalty with death spreading to everyone, if that demonstrates to us God's utter hatred of sin, then what Christ did, uh, what God did in Christ, we might say, demonstrates to us utterly His profound love. Because if his hatred for sin is that great, how much more must his love be to redeem us? If he's angry about sin to that degree, how much more, how much richer would be his grace? And so we might say this another way, that just as as corrupting as the influence was of Adam's sin, so equally is elevating and purifying the work of Jesus. Because the work of justification involves not simply the removal of the offense. It isn't just the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus' work of justification is actually crediting to our account His righteousness. Removing the credit for what we did wrong and giving us the credit for everything we didn't do right. And so the work of justification or through the work of justification, we might say, God's creation is not only restored to its pristine newborn innocence, but it is exalted to the very perfections of God. As you are given the perfect righteousness of God and sealed forever in that perfection by His power. That's the result of what Christ did, and it's far different than the result of Adam. Thirdly, as we take yet another journey down into the magnificence of the strata of this work, we find that there is not only a different reach and a different result, but there's a different reward, another key distinction. Verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man much more Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Obviously, the contrast here is between death and life. One man's trespass brought death spiritually and eventually physically. But Jesus' sacrifice brings life spiritually and eventually physically to all people through the resurrection. And again, Paul uses this phrase much more. Much more, all the more, as if to emphasize to us that just as assuredly as it happened in one instance with Adam, much more, much more surely we would say, in another way it will happen with Christ. Just as assuredly as death is a reality and reigns, so much more will life reign among us. You should be in other words just as sure and just as confident of the day of your resurrection and your and your glory with Christ you should be just as sure and just as confident as that uh, in that as you are of your death because much more is the work of Christ It's a glorious thought that Paul's giving to us isn't it if we know that to be true, how much more ought we know the one thing that Christ Jesus has given to us in the righteousness, righteousness to be even greater in its effect? And we ought to know it because it has already begun in our hearts. We've already experienced spiritual life in our hearts. And its effect will be eternal. And we might add that whereas the death that Adam's sin brought into the world eventually could be, could be overcome by life. As Christ comes, He overtakes the death of Adam. He overcomes it with His work. It doesn't work the other way around. Because the work of Christ is so much more. That it will never again be overtaken by death. It is the final victor. And so righteousness in life that comes to us through Christ is guaranteed. Much more is His gift. Guaranteed because it was purchased not by our own deeds, not by the deeds of a faltering and failing man, but it was purchased by the enduring and perfect eternal Son of God. Well, there's another key distinction for us to keep in mind. Paul speaks about it in verses 18 and 19. And that's a difference in relationship. And now the repetition allows us to move through these remaining points rather quickly. And we see here yet this other contrast between these two men, but this time it's a contrast of our relationship to them, or or we might say a contrast of our reckoning in them. And the contrast is now not between the free gift. Paul leaves behind the language of the, the free gift and the benefits. And now he takes on the language of relationship. The contrast now is between the trespass on one hand and the act of righteousness on the other. Or as he restates it in verse 18, disobedience and obedience. Listen to what he says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul, getting to the essence of the issue here, one man's disobedience, as, and as a result, we were all made sinners. And one man who was obedient, and as a result, we were all made righteous. Now Paul doesn't clarify whether what he's talking about here Is the fact that through Adam we were declared to be sinners? Or whether we were made into people who do sinful deeds because of our relationship with him? And he doesn't clarify whether or not we were declared to be righteous or were made into people who do righteous deeds because of our relationship to Adam. Excuse me, to Christ. But it doesn't matter because both are really true. We're legally declared to be sinners when Adam fell into sin, and every person born after him, born under the same legal status, born under condemnation, is born a dead sinner. And if you're in Christ, you are legally declared to be righteous, despite all of your violations, and yet now you live forever with his legal status, not only as righteous, but but also as one who lives righteously by the working of his power. But really, I think based on the fact that verse 18 appears to be an explanation, a clarification of verse 17, we might conclude that what Paul's talking about here is this primarily forensic nature of what takes place legally for each one of us based on our relationship to these men probably talking about the legal declaration of our status because he introduces verse 18 with the word what? the word for. We were made sinners because we were condemned, we were made righteous because we were justified. We were cursed as as disobedient and born spiritually dead. And when we receive the blessing of justification, we're made spiritually alive. All of this of course will become the whole point in Romans 6, that this relationship brings about now new life. It brings about living obediently. We become characterized as children of obedience, as as Peter says. It is now our nature to obey because we have been born again. But it's all based on our relationship to Him. You see, if you're here in your day and you have been taught and you have been brought up and you have been exposed to standards of righteousness, you've been exposed to good deeds, you've been called to obey, you've been called to tell the truth, you've been called to honor other people, to serve other people, to do the things of God, to read His Word, to pray, you've been called to all those things, but you don't have the capacity to do them. You have tried, you failed, you've fallen on your face, there's nothing within you That that allows you to sustain that sort of life of righteousness. And you wonder why it is. Well the scripture tells you why it is. It's because you're not spiritually alive. It's because there's no spiritual life within you. And it's not until you have that spiritual life. It's not until you're born again in Christ. That you have that capacity. To become now. A child of obedience. A child who follows the Lord because you have the Lord's law written on your heart. But your relationship with Christ changes all of that. You may have nothing but a relationship with Adam, which brought death, but a relationship in Christ will bring you this new life. Well, lastly, Paul draws our attention to a different rule, a different rule that governs Each of these relationships now, depending on which relationship you stand in. If it's in Adam, you stand under the rule of the law. But if it's in Christ, you stand under the rule of grace. And that's the contrast that he makes in these final verses. It's not the free gift and the one trespass. It's not the one act and the one act of righteousness. Now the contrast is law versus grace. As he says in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Law, which brings sin and death. Grace, which brings righteousness and life. And we'll come back to this in Romans 7. So we don't need to do more than simply introduce it here. But it has to do with the nature and the purpose of the law. Paul says it came in order to increase the trespass. Now you might be thinking, I thought the law was given so we could obey. You know, we teach our kids the Ten Commandments because we want them to obey. Yes, we want them to obey, but we know that they can't without the inner working of God. And if we think that they can without the inner working of God, then we have the wrong theology. No, we teach them the law because we want them to see that they can't obey. It's kind of like an x-ray machine. We put the x-ray machine over them so that they can see what's in their heart. Because otherwise, they may not recognize it. You go to the doctor. You go to some imaging center because you have some pain. You don't really know what it is. You don't know why it's there. And they put you under that machine or they put you in the MRI and they spotlight. There it is. That's where it's coming from. You want to know why you feel what you feel? You want to know why you feel alienated from God? You want to know why you feel the pains of guilt and shame? You want to know why you feel like your life is broken? Look at the law and it will tell you why. It will tell you what? It will tell you you're a sinner. That's why your life is broken. That's why you're alienated from God. That's why you feel so guilty. Because you are. Because you violated the law. And so the law comes in. To increase. To magnify. Your culpability. Paul's already told us. Back in verse 13. Right? That the law. When the law was not there. Sin and death were there. Because Adam's violation of his law. Was applied to our account. But when the law came in. It increased the violations. Increasing the violations increases the culpability. Increasing the culpability increases the condemnation. But it also increases our understanding of why we need a Savior. It came to increase sin. It came in to increase sin. But much more, much more. The work of Christ. Because where sin increased, what we heard is that there's no amount of sin that can't be answered by the grace of the Savior. You could increase the sin. It doesn't matter if you come from a, a godly home where you were raised and in a very strict environment and you were kept far from the worst ravages of sin. Or it doesn't matter if you came from the depths of the ghetto, from a broken home and a broken environment where you were cast in front of every temptation from the earliest days, and consequently there is in your life a background of baggage and dirt and filth and darkness that you think that not only would God want to have nothing to do with, but no person on this earth would want to have anything to do with you if they really knew what was there. The sin is monumental. Well, listen, where sin increases, grace increases. Where sin is multiplied, there's plenty of grace. There's plenty of grace to answer it. There's plenty of grace to forgive it. There's plenty of grace to restore it all. It's the answer of Christ. One man might have left you in that position where you're spiritually dead and subject to the powers of sin. But praise God, there's one man who can wipe all that away and make you a new person. Where you're no longer a slave to sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. It's glorious to take in the full gaze of what Christ did for us. Much more, much more than we sometimes ever imagine. But He gave it all and offered it to you if you'll respond to Him by faith. That's our challenge this morning. Is that you wouldn't leave here without a relationship to him. That if you're not in Christ. Then you are all those other things. You are condemned. You are dead. You're cursed. You're alienated from God. But it just simply takes a response. Faith. And by faith. You will be saved. You will be saved. Our challenge to you today is believe. Believe. What the law says about you. What the x-ray machine shows about you. But then believe that God is able to forgive it all through Christ. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this truth. We're grateful for, for all of the ways that it is exposed to us. It ought to lift our hearts to sing. Lift our spirits to your very throne. It ought to make us realize that for all the despair and disappointments of this life, much, much more is the grace of our Savior. And we thank you for it that you answered in such an abundant way that all the resources of Christ are ours and we're made to stand together with Him. May His name be praised. May His work always be our delight. And may it be our joy to tell others of how much more Christ does for us than Adam ever could. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.